Hello, listeners. This is Gerard Robinson from beautiful and yet rainy Charlottesville, Virginia. As you know, we get together every week, Kara and I, and we bring in some of the top talent in the country in the areas of education, history, sociology, philosophy, the law. We have advocates, we have CEOs, and we have parents. And all wrapped in one, of course, is my co-host, Kara. How are you? <laughs> I don't know. I've never been a CEO. <laughs> CEO, but yes, parents, CEO of your home. Well, yeah. damn straight. Am I allowed to say that exactly. on the <laughs> That's right, Gerard. I hope my husband is listening. Actually, he wouldn't argue with that by any stretch of the imagination. No, I am. I am doing well here in Boston. Here in the Northeast, Gerard. Fun fact: Children are not back in school. Did I say this last week? Am I a broken record? <laughs> Just, just in case anybody was wondering, I'm still working from home with three kids. And you know what isn't open right before Labor Day is summer camp. That's not happening either. So these are fun times in the Kandel household, but at least it's we're not in the middle of a pandemic and they can they can go and play. Well, I mean, I guess we are, but we're pretending like we're not anymore. They can go out and play with their friends and have human contact and stuff like that. So my post-traumatic stress is only a little bit showing, I suppose. But very excited to be back here with you, even more excited than I am for the start of a new school year on September 7th. Can't wait for that day. Well, here in Charlottesville, and Charlottesville is a part of Albemarle County, we started last week. So I see the buses moving in front of the house and children getting on and getting off. As you know, Virginia was one of the five states that opened them. And so it was good to see bodies back on buses and our two daughters are in school as well. So that time of year. What I'm so curious to know, when you were a kid, like what do you remember most profoundly about the first day of every school year? Like what made you most anxious or excited? What was it about for you? It was going to school with a new pair of tennis shoes. Yeah. It was just the coolest thing. And of course it's Los Angeles, so it hardly ever rains, so I didn't have to worry about that. But it was going to school with a new pair of tennis shoes, feeling like I could run faster than I ever could. And then getting together with my friends and we would sit around for lunch like that first week and talk about what we did for the summer. Yeah. I think that's my own memory too. I would say like from conscious memory, certainly not when I was like a kindergartner or something, but it all revolved around like, what was that outfit you were gonna wear on the first day of school, which is kind of sad mm-hmm. when I think about it. Interestingly, I don't think any of my children care. They would like wear their pajamas on the first day of school, but I remember it being a really big deal. And I have a very distinct memory because of course, you know, child of the eighties. Do you remember those Coca-Cola t-shirts that were popular for a time? Yes. The branded, I have this, distinct memory of my like awesome yellow and white coca-cola long sleeve polo that i had to beg my parents for because it was expensive of course the awesome 1980s hairdo i had the real class <laughs> you know where, where the hair took up the whole picture like school picture like the bangs were cut off so yeah interesting those first day of school memories seem so important then and so far away now but i'm happy that your girls are back and i hope they're having a wonderful first week So, story of the week, what's caught your attention? So, I'm going to talk about something that has been catching my attention for a while now because it's a little project that I'm working on and just in my work life and my day life. And as you know, Gerard, I was a teacher trainer for many years. So, not only did I do teacher training as a part of the National Academy of Advanced Teacher Education, which I was a founding member of back in like 2011. Shout out to our friend Tony Clemmer, who I can call him and tell him to listen. But 
Also, as a professor at BU, of course, part of my job was to people who are going to go out in the field and be teachers in education policy. And every time I turn on, you know, my, part of my morning routine is coffee and morning news and open a newspaper, which I still do, or um, listen to my local radio station. It's teacher shortage, teacher shortage, teacher shortage. And I think it's really easy to get into a space where everybody just thinks, oh my gosh, this is a crisis. We're in the middle of a crisis. But when we really dig into the research, I mean, you and I, I think we've talked about this before, the sort of pendulum swing over time where we go through these periods where it's like alarm bells are going off, there won't be any more teachers. And looking at the research, it's more complex than that. It's much more complex than saying we have a national teacher shortage. And so all of that said, I really appreciate this article in the 74 by Kevin Mankin. And it's called The Mass Exodus of Teachers Never Happened, paper argues. And so in here, he's talking about a paper from the Annenberg Institute at Brown University, actually written by a former guest on this show, Matt Kraft, Matthew Kraft. And what this is really talking about is, hey, guys, let's hold on for a minute and put this teacher shortage in perspective. And so... The big thing to know here, the headline that I think I hope listeners will understand is that, yes, it, between 2020 and 2022, especially right there in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge drop in the number of people who were employed in U.S. K-12 public education. But what people aren't talking about is the fact that that huge drop, that precipitous decline in employees didn't necessarily happen among the ranks of teachers. They were more concentrated in school districts, more bureaucratic positions, and then also some very important in-school positions like paraprofessionals, to some extent school counselors. But we keep talking in terms of a teacher shortage, and that is not always the case. So what Matthew Kraft and his colleague at Brown and at Annenberg have done is they've taken federal data sets, which are, you know, Gerard, you've looked at a lot of federal data sets. They're often old and sometimes difficult to merge and not and incomplete, right? But there's something. And then on top of that, they took statistics from 16 states on teacher turnover. And what these guys come away with is saying, okay, yeah, we have fewer people going into the profession of teaching, and that is a problem, and it's a problem we need to address. And they say, but let's be really clear. Teacher shortages are not blanket. They're not happening across the country everywhere. They're concentrated, as they always have been, since we've been talking about this since I started doing this 20 years ago, in certain places. So I was reading an article yesterday about Oklahoma City Public Schools. They now have hundreds of teachers on emergency certifications. But if you look at an emergency certification, by that, what I mean is people who aren't actually certified to teach what they're teaching, but states have to put somebody in front of children, right? So they give folks emergency certifications. And then on the other end, you have districts in Oklahoma where there's only been a request for maybe one emergency certification or no emergency certifications. So by obscuring the fact that teacher shortages are concentrated, unfortunately, and not surprisingly, they're often concentrated in highest needs communities. So urban centers tend to have shortages more often than suburban districts, right? And also that they're concentrated in certain fields. We've known for years that we're not producing enough math teachers. We're not producing enough STEM teachers. People aren't going in to teach special education, English language learners. These are the areas in which we're missing teachers. So why does this matter? This matters because as they argue in this paper, if you don't understand the nuances of the problem, 
you're not going to take the right approach to finding a solution. And so there are two concerns that they elevate here. They say, we do need to address teacher pipelines. We need more people going into the professions, yes. But we also can't just do it in a blanket way. It's not about getting bodies in classrooms to be teachers. And secondly, they say burnout is a concern. We need to focus on teacher retention. And this is, of course, through Nate, again, shout out to Tony Clemmer, right? What we always worked on at Nate was thinking about how do you keep those high flying teachers, those folks who are the bearers of school culture, those folks who are gonna mentor the newest teachers when they're in their first, second, third year of teaching to be great. How do you keep them? Because when they leave, schools lose a lot. I have certainly worked with schools in my life where 90%, 95% of the teaching staff in a given year can be all new. And let me tell you, that does not work well for academic outcomes. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good for kids. Kids need stability and consistency from the adults in their life. And that goes right down to the school level. Many kids are spending more time in school than at home. They want consistent faces. So those are a couple of problems. Now. What the authors of this paper don't talk about are the solutions that they would like to see. But this is something that I know you think about a lot and I've been thinking about a lot. And we've seen a lot of states come out with grow your own programs, which I think are wonderful approaches. It's identifying kids as early as high school who might wanna become teachers and paying their way through certification, bachelor's degrees, all of these things. Many of them are now federally registered apprenticeships. I think that's fantastic. But are we really targeting, for example, people who can be math teachers, people who can teach special education? That's one. And on the flip side of it, I think we also need to be thinking about what is it going to take to keep those high flyers in the profession. And by the way, some of those new teachers of today are the high flyers of tomorrow. And so people always say, well, teaching is such an underpaid profession. I'm not going to disagree. Teachers need to make more money. But really interestingly, a lot of data shows when you talk to teachers, they would much rather support in their classroom in the form of another adult, a paraprofessional, a counselor than a $5,000 raise, which might barely make an impact on their overall paycheck, right? So we think that there are lots of different ways that we need to be thinking about what so many are saying in this very alarming way is the teacher shortage crisis and be more thoughtful, especially those of us who are in a position to influence policies and policymakers, be much more thoughtful about the tools that we use in addressing the current problem. And I'll just end by saying, Gerard, Let's not forget that states are still sitting on a lot of relief money, COVID relief money. And one of the scariest things for my money that's happening right now, and this is also mentioned in the paper that Professor Kraft authored, is that some districts are panicking. Maybe they don't have the right supports and structures and help from the state that they're in for this. And so they're panicking and they're putting COVID relief funds that might be very well used towards things like tutoring, right? Learning recovery, personalized attention for kids that you can get maybe even by contracting out with a known provider. And instead, they're hiring for open positions without necessarily considering, is this really the position I need? Am I going to fill this position with a qualified person who's going to make a difference? So I think the question for the COVID relief money especially should be, what's going to be the biggest bang for my buck? Not just, oh my goodness, my budget says I need 50 people and I only have 47. Really nuanced. I appreciate this article. I'm going to keep watching this theme. It's something that we're going to be talking about for years to come, especially as more and more states try some great and some not so great approaches to addressing this concentrated teacher shortage and retention problem. What do you think, Jared? I'm always glad to hear you talk about your previous lives. 
and what you've done, because you have such a rich, diverse background. But I particularly enjoy when you talk about your work with teachers, because at the end of the day, that's where the rubber meets the road. We do policy and we love it, and that's often outside the school building. We can hold rallies and events at schools. Those are outside the classroom. But both inside the classroom and as Julie Young from our previous shows identified, you can use online learning. But this really matters. And so I'm glad that you brought this up. I'm also glad as someone who is a free market or what I would call a free enterprise guy, is to understand the role that the private sector can play in this. So when you mentioned STEM, I immediately thought about 100K in 10. Talia is the founder and executive director. I believe she's actually from Massachusetts. Early on, I had a chance to be an advisor, but they were created to try to create 100,000 new STEM teachers in 10 years. And they have a boatload of support in the public sector, including colleges of education. But look at the role the for-profit or the private sector community is playing. So when you look at their funders, it's Chevron, Dell, it's Genetech, it's Aspire, of course, it's Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and others. But we've got to get the private sector on board to invest money into making this happen because a lot of teachers, when they leave the profession, some of them go and work in the private sector for places like this. Some, in fact, actually bypass teaching, really wanted to teach, but they're going to work for a company. I think one way to build a bridge is to get private sector companies to an actually endow STEM chairs in middle school and high school. So if it's the Chevron chair or it's the Dale chair, you fund that chair, pay the teacher on interest only. You don't touch the principal. During the summer, have the teacher actually come to work for Chevron or Dell or another company. Pay that teacher the same salary he or she would have made had they been a full-time employee with the goal of taking the information back to the classroom, maybe writing a paper that they can use to share with others. But giving money is one way, but I don't think we're going to solve the STEM teacher problem until we do what we do in higher ed, which is endow chairs in STEM. We've got to do it in middle and high school. So just my two cents. Um, Jared, I just going to say, my friend, I love that. And after the show, we're going to hang on the line and you and I are going to try and talk about how to make that into policy that states will actually adopt. So thank you for that. Ah, we're going to do that. And listeners, you heard it right here on the learning curve. Promise. My <laughs> story. Yeah. yeah, well, my story isn't as exciting, but it's equally as real. And as we talk about, you know, the 50 million plus students returning to public schools, the over 7 million going to private schools, many more students are now homeschooling. One thing we have to remember is the fact that some of our children are finding themselves targeted for drug use. And so my story is from The Spectrum, which is a local outlet in Maine. And the title of the article is Candy Colored Fentanyl Reported in Maine, Part of a National Trend. And the authors are Elizabeth Barmeyer and Susan Cover. And they identified that two police departments in Maine, one in Bangor and one in Farmington, have reported the seizure of candy-colored fentanyl and meth. And it's part of a trend not only in Maine, but at the national level. But let's just focus on Maine right now. When the police seize the candy-colored fentanyl and meth, they actually share the information with Maine's information 
and Analysis Center. And it's actually an intelligence gathering service that shares information between states and the federal government. Now, Ken Charles, who is the chief of police in Farmington, he said the drugs were turned over to the police by a family member of someone who was actually seeking treatment. No charges were filed, and the police believe that the drugs were, in fact, meth. In addition to coming in different colors, get this, the meth, as well as incoming fentanyl, is shaped like dominoes. One piece of meth that I happened to see in the article had a Rolls Royce hood ornament on it. There were also faces of other people. And they come in colors. I mean, you could think it was a box of Lucky Charms when I was a kid. And so what Chief Charles said is that these drugs resemble vitamins and they're chewable for children. To quote him, he said, if they were mixed in a bottle, you would think you were eating or had Flintstone chewables and it's very unsafe. Now, for some of our listeners who may be familiar with this, either from personal or professional experience, but for those who aren't, fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid. And it's been linked to approximately 75% of the drug overdose deaths in the first six months of 2022 in Maine, according to the Office of the Attorney General. Approximately 266 people have died in the state. A year ago, 636 people died of a drug overdose in Maine, which set a record. That's just not adults, but it's also children. But this is not just a Maine problem. Let's look at a national trend. There's someone named Andre Swanson, who is a public information officer with the Drug Enforcement Administration in St. Louis. And he told Spectrum News during the interview that when you color fentanyl, it's just another way of appealing to youth. And here's a quote. Drug traffickers will do anything to increase their profits. Adding a trendy candy color to the drug will lead to more deaths and also a way of making more money. Swanson went a step further to say that when we talk about fentanyl, we have to put it in contact with other drugs. Swanson said fentanyl is, quote, 100 times more dangerous than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin. Sometimes people think they're actually taking one type of pill when it's actually fentanyl. If we go to the Western states in Arizona, get this, U.S. Custom and Border Protection officers seized more than 50 15,000 colored fentanyl pills recently, and they were actually strapped to someone's leg. Right now, nationally, approximately 100,000 people overdose every year. But what does this mean for young people? So earlier this year, the journal, the American Medical Association, known as JAMA, released a study about drug deaths among adolescents. And Joseph Friedman, who is a uh, UCLA addiction researcher and the lead author in the JAMA paper, he said, quote, drug use is becoming more dangerous, not more common. So initially, when I was studying for our conversation today, I was just assuming that more drug use was in place. This author and others actually identified that drug use amongst teens has gone on somewhat over the past 10 years. In some areas, it's actually flattened, and in some areas, it's gone down. So it's not drug use. Instead, what Friedman is saying, he said, to some degree, I think that is just a national progression of the fentanyl crisis in general. And what does he mean by that? Well, number one, he identified that the type of fentanyl that students are using or getting to hold to right now, more powerful and more dangerous than before. But he's also seen a trend over the last couple of years with the number of young people dying from fentanyl. So according to the paper, 
512 adolescents died of an overdose in 2010. That was roughly 2.4 people for every 1,000 individuals. In 2019, the rate did not change much, 492 deaths or 2.36 people per 1,000. But get this, in 2000, the number jumped to 954 adolescent overdose deaths. And in the first six months of 2021, it actually increased 20%, up to 5.4 per 1,000. So naturally, we have to ask the question, why was there such a major increase over the last two years, where between 2010 and 2019, it remained rarely flat? Now, I'm saying that for statistical reasons, and in no way am I trying to gloss over the fact that 518 adolescents died in 2010 and 492 in 2019. But why? Well, naturally, I would say COVID. And there's one researcher, Scott Holland, who's uh, chief of adolescent and young adult medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in your neck of the woods. Scott actually said that mental health worsened during the pandemic and that for many people, the two go hand in hand. So some young people who in fact had mental health issues also find themselves reaching out for drugs to address it and getting a hold to some bad drugs. So that's one aspect. Scott also said the pandemic also interrupted treatment programs for adolescents who were dealing with drug use. So that's one. But why 2020? Well, COVID's a factor. But the researchers also said, let's remember that the type of fentanyl that young people are absorbing in their body right now is more dangerous in 2020 than before. And experts say that we have to take a look at that. So when I hear those stats, I think, you know, where do we go from here? So here are three recommendations the scholars recommend. And of course, as always, you'll have access to those articles on our webpage. Number one, talk to children about drugs and particularly young children who will see a drug and think that it's candy. I know how that works personally. When I was four or five years old, I found myself rushed to a hospital in Los Angeles to have my stomach pumped because I had overdosed on pills that my mother was taking. They were diet pills and they were red and they smelled like strawberry. So I thought it was strawberry candy. And I literally poured like 25 in my hand and took them all at once, started vomiting. Luckily, the parents were there and I was taken to the hospital. To this day, I still have a physical reaction when I smell strawberry flavored candy. So I know how that works. Number two, work with local drug prevention and treatment programs in your area. Many of them have people who understand what to do. And if you're a family in need or an educator in need, go there. I'll also say you've got to work with the local police. It was police departments in Bangor and Farmington, also in other cities that are trying to bust some of the drug rings. And while I understand there's still some who say we should defund the police on one end, and while I also understand the code of the streets where we say snitches get stitches, the police have a role to play in this. And lastly, and this is something that was interesting, right now, according to one federal report, all 50 states have a Good Samaritan law. And a Good Samaritan law will allow someone like Kara I to see someone in distress, to provide him or her support, to try to help them revive them, to help them. And just in case the person is injured or dies while we're trying to do this, we're not held criminally responsible for that. Someone said, why don't we make Good Samaritan laws available to teens who may find themselves in a similar situation with someone who overdosed? So that's my story of the week. I have spent a lot of time 
working with people, as you know, who are incarcerated. Many of them are in prison because of drug use, because of drug distribution. Many of them will tell you that meth and fentanyl destroyed their lives. It has taken a particular hit in places like Massachusetts, Ohio, Maine, Louisiana, and Florida. And it's really hitting rural communities, particularly poor white families. So in our broader conversation of what to do about American fabric, this has to be a part of the conversation. What are your thoughts? Oh, my gosh. My thoughts are I'm going to go and hug my children really tightly and continue to talk to them all the time about these issues, even when they're really little, because I, I am 100 percent with you. I think having real honest conversations with your kids from a young age about the consequences, because, you know, the thing that scares me, well, there's so, so many things that are scary about this, but especially when you're talking about kids, we know developmentally, not only are they not able to make adult decisions, not that adults don't always make decisions, but that their impulse control is almost non-existent. <laughs> even for many children who don't even look like children anymore, up into our 20s, we're not fully developed. And if you don't get a chance to make a mistake by saying, I'm depressed or I'm in a bad place and I'm going to take this drug and the drug is so powerful that it's, it's one and you're done, it's just too much of a risk. It's not like it was, Gerard, I think, when you and I were growing up and Nancy Reagan could tell us to say no to drugs, but we weren't talking about drugs for the most part that were going to kill us uh, the first time. Thank you for sharing your story. That's I can only imagine how frightened your parents must have been. And we do have to introduce our guests, but there's one more thing I would add, and that is the burden on schools when yep. really sick people are trying to make these things attractive to children. Is this just one more thing? It is one more thing that schools have to worry about. And it's if kids are passing around something which looks like candy, <laughs> you're not smoking or doing, you know, passing around a powder or something that an adult would recognize as a drug. It's like technology. It, it is technology. It's always one step ahead of us. And this is a really scary, scary story. Thank you for depriving me of sleep tonight, Gerard. <laughs> But I do think it's an important story, and I'm glad you brought it to our attention. We're going to take a hard left here, and we're going to bring in, actually, a friend of yours. We are going to be speaking with Professor Angel Adams-Parham, and Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. So we'll be back right after this. Welcome back, Learning Curve listeners. We are here with Angel Adams-Param, Associate Professor of Sociology and Senior Fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia, where she gets to work with my favorite co-host, the great Gerard Robinson. She is author of American Roots, Racial Palimpsests and the Transformation of Race, which was co-winner of the Social Science History Association's Alan Charlin Memorial Book Award and co-winner of the American Sociological Association's Barrington Moore Award in Comparative Historical Sociology. She also provides resources and training for K-12 educators who are looking to better integrate black writers and black history into their teaching. A book related to this work, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature, was published in July 2022. She has been a member of the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, as well as the recipient of a Fulbright grant. She received her bachelor's degree from Yale University and completed her doctoral work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Such a beautiful place, University of Wisconsin-Madison. My husband's a Yale man. He might push back on me for giving Madison a shout out. But at any rate, welcome to the show, Dr. Parham. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Yeah, we are really excited to have you. I mean, what a bio. And something left out of the bio is that I, and this just, I, is, I'm always so blown away. You're not only an accomplished academic, you are also a homeschooling mom. So tell us about yourself. I want to know how you became interested, not only in your work, but also what led you to become a homeschooling parent. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's a, a rather interesting story, as you might imagine. I homeschooled my daughters, and I've done it in various ways from when the oldest was two years old all the way up through the end of ninth grade for her, and then my youngest as well through the end of sixth grade. Since we've moved to Virginia, they are now at a classical school, which continues the whole philosophy of what I was doing at home. So we're in a a different phase of our education now. But what brought me to it, it's very interesting. So I was on sabbatical for a year, as you said in the bio, and we were away from home and the kids were very young. So the oldest at that time was five and the youngest was two. And so rather than put them in a school for one year and then yank them out and move back home, I had already been thinking positively about homeschooling and thinking I might be able to manage it with my teaching schedule. And so we just went for it. At five and two, we had our little table and we had wonderful literature that I would immerse them in. And we started there and I loved it so much. And we just continued doing that from then on. So that is where I started did that for 11 years where I was fully homeschooling them. And it was just a pleasure. It was also, you know, as you might imagine, challenging to manage working full-time and homeschooling, but it was just such a privilege. And it opened up whole worlds for me, including introducing me to classical education. Tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us what classical education, what role it played. You said it introduced you to classical education, but why was it so important to you and why is it continue to be such an important part of the education you want for your children? There are a couple of different ways to get into it. One way that classical educators speak of is educating for truth, goodness, and beauty with an emphasis on great books and great texts. And so that in and of itself is just a very attractive vision I had not grown up with this idea of education as truth, goodness, and beauty. And while I read some good books, I wasn't necessarily exposed to very many classics. So I was actually introduced to classical education by another Black homeschooling mother who was a leader in classical conversations, which I took part in. That's a homeschooling organization. And when I went, um, I went for an open house and the kids were singing the Timeline song, which is this wonderful 12-minute song where the children sing from early history, from the beginning of the world up until the present. And it's one of the most impressive things that you can ever behold. Young children as young as four years old will sing this Timeline song. And there are a number of resources that go along with it where you can dive into different aspects of the history from ancient history up to the present. I just found it such a beautiful, orderly way of organizing education. And then I would get to learn things like Homer's Odyssey. So we got a children's version of the Odyssey, and that was my first time reading the Odyssey. And I just started to think, why haven't these texts been part of my life? So the more I was schooling the girls, the more I was getting my own classical education. And 
that's not unusual among some classical homeschoolers. Most of us did not have a classical education. And so when we then educate our own kids, we get to kind of reclaim our own education and learn alongside with the children. And so that really just influenced pretty much every aspect of my life. It led to I and my friend who introduced me to classical homeschooling, to us founding the nonprofit Nyansa Classical Community, which brings classical education to low-income students of color. And so have been doing that. This is our seventh year doing that work, which has been incredibly fulfilling. And then also reading these classic texts has begun to inform my own scholarship at the university. It's just been a wonderful discovery for me. That's amazing. As the mother of young children, well, my oldest will be headed to seventh grade this year, which is very, very exciting. I think we've dabbled a little bit and tried to read some children's versions of those classics, but you inspire me. I think that is pretty, pretty neat that especially the idea that you're learning right alongside them. I can remember reading some classic texts as early as high school, but certainly not at elementary school age. Could we expand a little bit here? I would love for you to tell our listeners a bit more about the shared lessons about vice and virtue and human nature that you think should be embodied in the kind of sound classical curriculum, humanities curriculum that you are teaching at home and that your children will continue to experience. Sure. So, yes, we read classic texts and we also read a number of founding American documents as well as we are doing that kind of education. And it's really just replete with these lessons about vice and virtue. Um, That's another aspect of classical education is it's very much focused on the idea of cultivating virtue and really trying to help our children to learn these lessons from the past. And so some examples of that Looking at the Constitution, for instance, one of the main founding documents, as I was doing some of my own background research on this, I also do some training with um, classical educators, and I was doing some background research for lecture material for them. And what was really fascinating for me was looking at James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention, where you see how all of these compromises played out behind the scenes. You know, we have the final version of the Constitution, but in those notes that Madison has, you really see the back and forth over the controversial issues like the three-fifths clause, for example, the Electoral College is another example, and you see where the North and the South are really trying to figure out how to work together and move forward with this issue of slavery always looming in the background. This connects to the work of Frederick Douglass, who's another one who's a very key writer that I love to teach. So Douglas made this life-changing decision. He had initially felt, along with many other abolitionists, that the Constitution enshrined slavery and was really oriented toward keeping African Americans enslaved. But as a result of several conversations he had over the course of time, he came to believe that instead the Constitution really sowed the seeds of freedom. And so he really studied that text very, very carefully and could see where there were so many opportunities there for African-Americans to fight for their freedom, similar to the way that Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the promises of the American Revolution 
being this kind of promissory note of freedom, the declaration in the Constitution, that maybe we did not get those rights at that time as African-Americans. But that was a promissory note that was going to be delivered to us that we would claim. And so Douglas, I think, is one of the first of the wonderful Black intellectuals who wrote very much on this and who provides, I think, an example where instead of being polarized one side or the other on the idea, is the American project fundamentally flawed? Is it fundamentally something that leads us to freedom? Douglas has this really nuanced way of thinking that helps us to work through that. And by going to the original debates in Madison, you also get that behind the scenes look at how you use the democratic process to try to weigh vice and virtue. So, Professor, that's actually a good segue to my first question. So right now, we're living and educating young people all across the country in a bitter time in American history where we have divisions based upon race, class, and gender. You've said before, and I quote, everyone wants to be on the side of what they see justice to be, end of quote. Could you talk to us about how our parents and teachers, just educators in general, should be using enduring ideas of justice, whether they're drawn from Plato, Aristotle, you mentioned Douglas, but we can also add in Du Bois, MLK, and some of the women who you studied as well. What are your thoughts? Certainly. Yes, justice is very much on the agenda right now, and everyone is convinced that they are on the right side of it. And so here's where I I also do think that going back to these classic texts and learning from history is very helpful. One of the things that I really like to do is to put these different texts into dialogue, that is texts from the Black intellectual tradition, and then texts that have long been considered to be at the center of the canon. So an example here would be the horrible death of Michael Brown, which has been very, very controversial. People have come down on different sides there. There is a play by Sophocles called Antigone that in some ways raises very, very similar issues. In Antigone, Antigone's brother is part of a war that was also very, very much contested. It wasn't clear that he was on the right side of it. But whatever the situation was, he was killed. His body was left in the street. And it was ordered that no one could bury it. And Antigone defies this order. She says there is a law that is higher than the law that humans make, and I have to go according to that law. There is a group called Theater of War that uses theater for healing. And they went to Ferguson to do Antigone in Ferguson. And they brought people together in that community across lines of race, across different socioeconomic backgrounds, to redo this play Antigone in Ferguson and to help people to work through all of the difficulties of the injustice, you know, the racial tensions. And it became this way of using this ancient text to speak to contemporary issues of justice and race in America. And there are other kinds of pairings that I've also explored So MLK, who you also brought up, Martin Luther King Jr., I like to read his letter from a Birmingham jail together with sections from Plato's Apology, because King cites Plato in that talk. And one of the things that you see there is that King is 
drawing on this image of the gadfly. So the gadfly, which stings an animal and, you know, it's basically a pain in the butt. But what Socrates says in the Apology and then what King is also saying in his speech is that every society needs a gadfly to spur them to do what is right. So when we are apt to become complacent, it is that gadfly who we don't always want to hear from, but it's that gadfly who keeps us on the right way and who keeps us in tension to really examine what we're doing and to interrogate our actions. Absolutely. Well, let's shift to another topic. So in our current public debate about who's right, who's wrong, on one side, you have the 1619 Project, which has received a lot of praise as well as criticism. And in part, as a response to it, you have 1776 Unites equally heaped with praise and criticism. And they're both talking about the American past and what it looks like and what it means. And so what would you say to parents and teachers alike about how to navigate this difficult landscape so that students can have a balanced understanding of America's many virtues and successes, as well as dealing with some of its grave deficiencies and failures in order to hold up bigger ideas about civic values? This has been one of the things that has been one of my greatest motivations in the work I've been doing recently with students and teachers because I fear that we are just becoming more and more polarized along these lines, exactly what you said, 1619 versus 1776, and it shouldn't be one versus the other. They're both significant parts of our history. So what I recommend and what I do is to focus really as much as possible on founding documents, on primary sources, so that what you're wanting to do is to bring students to as close as possible to those original voices. I try very much not to bring my own agenda to it. It's not to say that I don't have a point of view, but when dealing with students, what I want them to do is I want them to come to those documents to look at the Declaration, to look at the Constitution, but also to read things like significant Supreme Court decisions, like the Dred Scott decision, for instance. To read Frederick Douglass, Douglass has a very moving speech about the Dred Scott decision. He's got a wonderful talk about Lincoln, where when he's talking about Lincoln, it is for the dedication of a statue, the Freedmen's Memorial to Lincoln, but he actually starts out being critical of Lincoln and saying, you know, it took him a while to kind of get together with emancipation, but he finally came to it. Douglas is a great model of being able to look at where are the flaws, but also being able to celebrate the successes. And so I think looking at founding documents and primary sources as much as possible, looking at the work of great speakers and writers like Du Bois and Douglas is also very important. Phyllis Wheatley is one who is often overlooked, but she was there at the beginning with the revolution, very supportive of the American Revolution, but also very critical of American racism. So I think many of these writers are wonderful guides to being able to call out what is wrong and also celebrate what is right. When I think about wonderful articles that make me think a lot, I think about your May 2022 article in the Wall Street Journal. And in there, you said excellence and diversity can coexist with an education in the classics. 
The classics should be evaluated and broadened, diversified through context and accumulated knowledge. I am an alum of Howard University. I studied philosophy. While I was there, I had friends who also studied the classics. In fact, our first woman at Howard to earn a Rhodes Scholarship was a classics major. And at the time I was there, Frank Snowden was still on the staff, and we had mm -hmm. some other classicists as well. What I heard then, and that was in the 1980s, why do Black people in particular want to study philosophy or the classics? And then number two, today you have, why would anyone, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, or otherwise want to study the classics. Would you elaborate on your article in the Wall Street Journal and then talk to us about the main themes from your new book, The Black Intellectual Tradition, Reading Freedom in Classical Literature? Yes, you're right. So it used to be, why would black people want to study the classics? And that's still a question, but it's also become, why would anyone want to study the classics? And I think the answer is that, you know, we are a relatively young country. We are so forward-looking that often the past and the wisdom of the past gets overlooked. And so I think we have to be very conscious to look to the lessons of the past, to look to great writings in order to give us guidance for how to move forward. For instance, so often the kinds of controversies that we're caught up in, these are conversations and issues that have occupied others at other times and other places, and we can learn from that by reading classic texts. They can help us to really reflect on this. So, for example, what I was saying about Antigone and then Antigone and Ferguson. It's not the case that studying that text and coming together in community around it is going to fix our injustices, but it gives us some perspective. It gives us some larger issues of justice and ethics to think through. It provides a framework for our conversation rather than us just dealing at the superficial level of what we have today. It provides cultural and historical resources. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Anyone, in order to move forward well, you need really good historical content, cultural content that you are drawing from in order to come to your conclusions about how to live well and how to deal with various controversies that we are going through. So in terms of the book, my co-author and I, Dr. Nika Prather, wrote the book because we're both very devoted to the classics and we're both devoted to this understanding of the classics that it embraces people of all different cultures and backgrounds. And so one of the ways of thinking about classical education is that it invites students to be part of a larger conversation organized around questions like, what is justice? What is goodness? What is freedom? What does it mean to be human? these kinds of questions that have been part of the discussion going back for millennia. And so we want to invite our young people to that conversation and help them to know that they have a place in it. So what the book does is to also show how Black intellectuals have long been part of that conversation because that's a part of our history that has been forgotten. So we wrote it for that reason, but we also wrote it to make the case, and we think and hope it's a compelling case, that it's also important for majority students of European background to be reading these Black writers as well. 
For example, the question, what is the essence of freedom? A very key question, certainly for us as Americans, and a very key question going back for millennia. So who better to speak to that kind of question of what is the essence of freedom than a people who have had to overcome great injustices, who have had to overcome a background of enslavement? People like Phyllis Wheatley, like Olauda Equiano, who was also kidnapped from West Africa and wrote his story, like Frederick Douglass, like Du Bois, are able to speak to these great questions. What does it mean to be human? What is the essence of freedom? In ways that you're not going to get from anyone else. And so for those who are really committed to wrestling with these great questions, it's imperative that they be reading Black writers, particularly in a context like the United States. So we wanted the book to speak both to the Black community to say, this is already part of your heritage. Well into the end of the 19th century, Black students were being trained in the classics. And then we also wanted to speak to the majority population to say, there are also really important reasons that you should be reading these excellent Black writers. When you mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King, of course we know him as a preacher or even a pastor, but we often fail to realize that he initially did not want to become a pastor. He had come from a generation of pastors, and he believed there was too much emotionalism alone mm -hmm. until he had an opportunity to hear from Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, who's famed for a number of things, one being the president of Morehouse College. But Dr. King said he became a spiritual father for me because he took intellect, religion, social science, the humanities, and blended it into a way to articulate the human condition. He studied rhetoric. He earned a PhD from the University of Chicago. And so the importance of a teacher flipping someone who loved the classics, who loved religion, who loved literature, to help bring Dr. Martin Luther King in there. So I want to give a shout out for Dr. Mays as well and the importance of teachers and mentors. We want to close by giving you an opportunity to read a passage from the book you just described. Certainly, and thank you for that opportunity. So I'll be reading from our first chapter. Many writers within the Black intellectual tradition take us through the darkest chapters of our history, calling us not only to look and see, but to feel and grieve with them. And yet, they do not abandon us to grief. The writers we will examine in this book were also people of faith. Their lives are models for how it is possible to live through egregious injustice and sorrow in a way that allows one to be whole in spirit and to work toward a world more rather than less filled with truth, goodness, and beauty. It is in this sense that even as they usher us through the valley of lamentation, showing us with their lives how to endure unjust trials, they hold on to hope and eschew prolonged anger and bitterness. Because they are secure in the knowledge that God is on the side of justice, they not only grieve, but they also help us to see through the darkness toward the light. It's absolutely beautiful. Professor Angel Adams-Param, thank you so much for this time today. I know I have personally learned a lot from listening to you. What an amazing human being you are. And it sounds like your daughters are very fortunate. I think you said daughters. <laughs> your children yes, are very daughters. fortunate <laughs> to have had you as an educator and a mother. And we're fortunate to have had you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
So my tweet of the week comes from Education Next, August 28th. And here's what it says, book banning. National Public Radio reports that a Keller Independent School District located outside of Fort Worth, Texas, has asked school staff to remove the Bible from classrooms and libraries. So at a point in American history where we're having conversations about critical race theory and questioning books like Woke Baby and other points, we are also forgetting that there is another cultural war taking place as well. And this one has to do with the Bible and whether it should be in the classroom or not. There has been state and federal Supreme Court decisions about this for a long time. There are also nonprofit organizations which have worked with local school districts or individual schools to show how the Bible can either A, be taught as a part of literature or B, find itself as part of a broader book level conversation in after school programs. But that is the tweet of the week. Ay, 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 ay. Gerard, people need to chill out. <laughs> Moderate yourselves, people, on both sides. On both sides, moderate. Yes, of course the Bible can be read as literature, the greatest literature in any language. And we should also be able to let kids read literature that's going to provoke conversation, including, quote-unquote, woke literature. As I said at the outset of the show, Gerard, America, the country that loves to ban a book. My goodness gracious. Okay, we're going to be back. I'm sure there'll be more talk about how bananas we've gotten on both sides of the political spectrum. Next week, we're going to be talking with somebody who I'm sure is not bananas. We're going to be speaking with Timothy Garten-Ash. He's a professor <laughs> of European studies in the University of Oxford. Isaiah Berlin, professorial fellow at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and author of The Polish Revolution, Solidarity. As somebody who spent a lot of time in Poland and is very fascinated by the Polish Revolution, I'm eager to catch up. So until next week, Gerard, please take good care. I will do so. Take care.